Oh, Father, as we gather today, we ask that You would strengthen us. We ask that You would use Your Word to convict us, to correct us, to grow us in Christ's likeness, to equip us for works of righteousness that Christ may be glorified in our lives. And so as we come to Your Word, we remember that these are the functions of Your Word. That it does Your work in us. And so we pray that by the power of Your Spirit working in us, that we may be conformed to Christ's image and that we may see the beauty of Your Word, the value of Your Word, the way that it relates to our lives, and that we would apply it in obedience to You. All for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 30. We'll be in Psalm 30 today. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles out in the foyer on the, uh, on the counter. Uh, please feel free to, to take one if you don't have a Bible uh, and if you need one. But today we will be looking at Psalm 30. Um, and we'll be resuming, of course, our study in John next week, the first Sunday of every month. Uh, we study a psalm kind of as a way of keeping one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament, uh, remembering that all of God's Word is uh, to our benefit. So we want to keep one foot in each one of the Testaments. So today we'll be looking at Psalm 30. Nobody could deny that Michelangelo was one of the, the greatest artists in history. He was known for not only his poetry, he was also known for his architecture, he was known for his incredible skill as a painter, but perhaps he is most recognized for his work as a sculptor. The statues that he made, if you've ever seen them, are absolutely incredible. The, the one of Moses, and, and particularly the one of David. Uh, the detail is just staggering. In 1501, Michelangelo was only 26 years old when he was commissioned by the guild that was responsible for the upkeep and the decoration of the cathedral in Florence, Italy. They commissioned him to create the sculpture of King David at only 26 years old. The sculpture is, even today, widely recognized as possibly the greatest piece of sculpture uh, art in world history. The detail is absolutely perfect, down to the veins in his hands. And as you look at the sculpture, it's difficult to imagine that prior to Michelangelo getting his hands on it and chiseling it into a statue, it was just a giant piece of rock. Sometime after David finished his beautiful sculpture, uh, somebody came to him and asked Michelangelo how in the world such a beautiful sculpture could come from a solid block of jagged, raw Italian marble stone. And Michelangelo's response was this. He said, that was easy. I just chiseled away everything that didn't look like David. <laughs> Friends, if you're a Christian, if you have put saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ then you must live every day of your life in light of the fact that what Michelangelo did with that piece of solid, uh, raw, jagged stone is the same thing that God is doing with you. 
He is chipping away. He is chiseling away at everything within you and everything about you that is not resembling the Lord Jesus Christ. God delights in and God is glorified by taking raw, jagged, undistinguished pieces of humanity, those who have been corrupted by sin, and chiseling a new creation out of it that becomes increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. This is a good and a glorious work that the flesh cannot do. It's something that only God can do. And that's exactly why the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, uh, verse 71, he says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Let me read that again because I didn't missay it. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. See, in our flesh, we see no value in affliction. But for the person who is being sanctified, for the person whom God is chiseling away at, for the person whom God is causing to grow in the likeness of Christ, it is a good and blessed thing to be afflicted by the hand of God. We understand that affliction involves pain. It involves discomfort. It involves distress. But all those things are here today and gone tomorrow. Those things are all just temporary. But what they produce in us, what that work produces in us, is eternal. And it's with this in mind that we understand that if God afflicts us, it is only and entirely for our good. God does not discipline His children in anger to drive them away, but as a loving Father who is all-wise, all-powerful, and who loves us enough to break us away from everything and anything within us and about us that is not Christ-like. And this is why David writes Psalm 30. This is what he's writing about in this psalm. This is a psalm of thanksgiving, and yet it's also somewhat of a psalm of lament. But that actually makes sense if you think about it, because we have every reason to be thankful when we know that God has heard our lament. And God has heard David's lament in this psalm. We should understand that this psalm is a song written by David after God had delivered him from some kind of great illness, some kind of sickness. Uh, That much becomes very evident as we make our way through this psalm. But there's actually no record in Scripture of David ever being so sick that he was on the verge of death. But that doesn't mean it never happened. That would be an argument from silence. Scripture doesn't tell us every single detail about David's life, and we shouldn't expect it to. But there was indeed a time when David was so sick he could have died. And that's what he's writing about. That's the experience that he's writing about in Psalm 30. But in the midst of his affliction, David saw why he was being afflicted. He saw the purpose of his sickness. He saw the eternal value that was being produced by it. He saw that his sickness was God's means of disciplining him, of of chastening him, of making him more like Jesus, who was still, of course, yet to come. But through this terrible sickness, David realized that God was dealing with a sin in his life. 
What sin is that? We actually find out as we read this psalm. It's the sin of self-sufficiency. If you look briefly at verse 6 with me, this is what we see. He says, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. That's a bold thing to say. That's a foolish thing to say. And David sees this sin. He sees the sin of relying on himself and his worldly treasure as the cause of this great sickness that nearly put him in the grave. So the point of this psalm is that God often uses difficult, painful, but temporary circumstances in order to create an eternal value within us. In order to teach us to see ourselves as being totally reliant on Christ. In order to teach us to see ourselves as not sufficient, but to see Christ as entirely sufficient. As I thought about this psalm, as I, as I prayed about it, as I meditated on it this past week, I was continually brought back to the words of Jesus in John 15.5 where He told His disciples, He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit, for apart from Me you can do nothing. Nothing. It's a strong word. But if you want a verse that warns us of the incredible danger of having a strong sense of self-sufficiency, this is it. And yet, that's the direction that our flesh inclines us to constantly go toward. We don't just figure things out eventually. We don't just, in our flesh, figure out that we're not sufficient. If we figure that out, that is God's grace working in us. The reason it must be God is because we are just, in our flesh, far too prideful, far too stubborn to acknowledge our insufficiency. And so God must work. God must chisel away at our pride and at our inclination to live as if we don't need Him or to even live as if we only need Him just sometimes, just on Sundays. So, as we look at this psalm, it begins with David rejoicing after God's chiseling, disciplining hand has been removed from him. Let's look at the first three verses together. Psalm uh, 30, verses 1-3. to It says, A psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up, and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to You for help, and You healed me. O Lord, You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. So this psalm begins with an inscription, as many psalms do, telling us that it was a song that was to be sung at the dedication of the house. It's interesting to note that this is the first psalm that uh, is connected to a specific historical event since Psalm 18. That was the last psalm that was connected to a specific historical event. The psalms normally don't uh, connect to a historical event the way this one does. But this inscription is perhaps a little bit confusing on the surface because historically there's no clear consensus at all about what this 
house might refer to. Uh, it's, there are really two primary possibilities. Uh, the first being the temple in Jerusalem, and the second being David's own house, the palace in which he lived as king. Now, I think it's probably pretty unlikely that it was in reference to the temple in Jerusalem, simply because the temple in Jerusalem didn't exist in David's day. In fact, it wasn't built until after his day. It was built in Solomon's day. Uh, But is it possible that David wrote this psalm intending for it to be saved and used when Solomon built the temple? Possibly. Maybe. I mean, but this psalm, I'd say, is most likely written to be a song to be sung at the dedication of David's own house. But what's interesting about the structure of this psalm, and the reason that I started by taking us back to, uh, all the way up to verse 6 briefly, is that David is actually beginning at the end here. Uh, in so many of the psalms, we, we've seen David crying out to God in the middle of a terrible situation. But as this psalm starts, he's not in the middle of a terrible situation. He's looking back on his circumstances in a terrible situation. A period of time in which he was being afflicted. The time in which God was lovingly as a father chastening him, chiseling away at him, and disciplining him. Having come near to death, David has every reason in the world to look back on those circumstances, on that affliction, and to rejoice over the way that God had preserved his life and restored his life, delivering him from what seemed like at least on the surface, certain death. David says in verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. The idea of you have lifted me up, the language that David is using there is the same language that you would use to refer to drawing water from a deep, deep well. In other words, he was so deep in the pit of death that the only way back was by God graciously acting to preserve him and restore him. Apart from God intervening, apart from God lifting David up, all hope of David recovering was lost. Now back in Psalm 28, David began that psalm by imagining himself just kind of being on the verge of of death, uh, kind of teetering over the edge of the pit of death. He said in Psalm 28 uh, verse 1, My rock... Do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. So see, he's kind of just imagining what could happen. But here in Psalm 30, David doesn't see himself as teetering on the edge of death. He doesn't see himself as being on the brink of falling into this pit. He says that he was there. He didn't die, but he couldn't have been closer. When we see somebody who's close to death, we might uh, use an expression like, you know, they've got one foot in the grave. But David's saying that both feet were in the grave and that he was so sick that his enemies were already prepared to close the coffin, at least in their minds. And that's the condition, that's the affliction from which God delivered him. As David looks back, he knows that his death would have given his enemies every reason in the world to not only mock and celebrate his death, but also to mock God. 
But what David remembers as he looks back on this affliction is that he cried out to the Lord for help and the Lord healed him from this illness that was brought on by his own sin of self-sufficiency. And we have to see that David is giving God all the credit, all the glory for his recovery. And of course, this is a very important part of the psalm for us to consider, for us to, to think deeply about. Let me ask you this, do you think of recovery from illness or recovery from even a headache in these same terms? We live in an age that is absolutely dominated by the pharmaceutical industry. As my wife and I were watching a streaming service the other night, we noticed that almost every single commercial break featured a pharmaceutical commercial. I can't even imagine how expensive that must be to run one-minute commercials several times in a show. But we live in an age, this is just an indication that we live in an age in which many people are convinced that there has to be some kind of pill to remedy every possible ailment, to remedy every possible discomfort. And the result, I fear, is that we start thinking of which pill we should take or which prescription we should tell our doctor we want to try before we pray, before we go to God. Being inundated by the influence of big pharma has resulted, I fear, in even most Christians losing a sense of God's presence, of God's provision, of God's sustenance and grace in our lives whenever we're suffering or undergoing any type of discomfort. Now, of course, this isn't to say that there's no place for medicine in the Christian life. Of course there is. But let me ask you this. Which remedy comes to mind first? God or medicine? In your mind, does your life depend on medicine sustaining you or God sustaining you? That's really the question. Medicine is a gift from God when it's used properly. But we should never let any gift, any gift, distract us from the giver of every good gift. If medicine helps you to recover, praise the Lord. If medicine sustains you, praise the Lord. Don't forget to give thanks and praise to God. He's the one who holds your life in His hand. He's the one who gives the gifts. We see David drawing a lot of contrasts in these verses. A couple of the more significant contrasts. First, we see the contrast between David going down to death's pit versus God lifting him up. And we see, secondly, a contrast between the God who loved David and restored David versus his enemies who hated him and were ready to seal his fate in the ground and to celebrate and mock his death. David does the most natural thing in the world in the next couple of verses. He's been praising God for what God has delivered him from, for what God has graciously done for him. But now David turns his attention to God's people. And David now petitions for all the saints, for all of God's people, to join him in praising God. Let's continue with verses 4 and 5. He says, Sing praise to the Lord, you His godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. 
Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. David is urging God's people to praise God. Now we should expect that the people would thank and praise God for restoring the health of their king, especially given that their king, David, was a man who was after God's own heart. But David doesn't even mention himself here. He doesn't even bring himself into the equation when giving them a a reason, a, a justification, a motivation for praising God. Instead, what he urges them to do is to praise the Lord. Verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. In other words, what David is doing here is he's encouraging them to praise God because God is good and gracious even in times of discipline. He's calling on them to recognize how compassionate God is to all his people. Not only to David. David's not even bringing himself into this but to all of God's people. In other words, what David is saying here is what's happened to him in receiving God's sovereign grace and providence is a picture of how God treats all of His people. Of how gracious God is to all of His people. Even in times of affliction. Now as you consider verse 5, let me warn you not to miss that there's a parallel between these clauses. There are two clauses here. If you just glance over the first clause, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime, you might come to the second clause, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning, and it may appear to you, if you miss that first clause, it may appear to you to be really saying nothing more than, well, you've got to take the good with the bad. Or, There's a silver lining behind every cloud or something like that. No, what David is talking about here is the way that God lovingly disciplines all of His children as a means of blessing them. Even when God chastens us. Even when God disciplines us. It's driven not by wrath, not by anger, not by judgment, but by love. He deals with the sin in His people, but not in a punitive way. The grace of God and the favor of God that He gave us in salvation will endure through the times of correction and discipline that we all must endure. Indeed, His grace and His loving kindness unto His people endure unto eternity. His judgments and His disciplinary actions toward His children are entirely just, but they're short-lived. They are only temporary and they are short-lived. They're nowhere near the wrathful judgment of which we are all worthy. And this isn't just some kind of head knowledge that David has that he's talking about here. This isn't just intellectual knowledge. It's not theoretical information to him. We know that he experienced God's just judgments against his sins at various times in his life, right? One of the more famous times being his affair with Bathsheba. But we read of another time in his life when David learned this experientially. It's not just theoretical knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. We read of this time in his life when David thought it would be a good idea to tally up the number of people in Israel who could go to war on the king's behalf. 
And so he sent Joab. And Joab protested initially, but eventually ended up obeying, God's, uh, obeying David's command to go out and to number the people of Israel. When Joab came back with the number several months later, this is what we read in 2 Samuel 24.10. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Why was David's heart troubled there? It's because he realized that in numbering the people of Israel, in trying to figure out how many people would be on his side if they were to go to war, he was not trusting in the Lord. He was trusting in the numbers. He was trusting in man. He was being self-sufficient. The next day, the Lord sent a prophet named Gad to go and speak to David, offering to David a choice of three judgments as a result of David's sin. The first option was three years of famine on the land. The second option was three months of having to flee from the presence of his enemies. And the third option was God bringing upon the land three days of pestilence, that is, plague, pandemic in the land in which the angel would ravage every part of the kingdom of Israel. And David, considering these three options, chooses the third one. And he would explain his decision in verse 14 where he says, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord for His mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Why not? Because God's mercies are great and man's aren't. So the plague did fall on Israel. 70,000 men died on the first day. But when we get to verse 16, we read this, then the angel, When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. God's mercies are great. His anger is but for a moment, but His favor for a lifetime. Friends, we all experience various afflictions. We all experience trials and tribulations. God disciplines all of His children. Turmoil and trials are not only a part of life, but it is a guaranteed aspect of the Christian life. You think it's painless to go from this slab of raw humanity, sinful humanity, and be conformed into the image of Christ? Do you think that can happen painlessly? It can't. Not a single one of us, however, has endured as many trials, as many afflictions, as the number of sins we've committed. And all Christians should be able to see that even in our afflictions... Even in difficult times, God has been producing something in us that is greater than could have been accomplished with comfort or by God just giving us a wink and a smile toward our sin. And that something is the likeness of Christ. Our trials come and go. They're temporary. But God's grace isn't. God's favor isn't. God's love toward His people isn't. It stays. 
And that's why Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We too must see that we have every reason imaginable to thank and to praise God for His goodness and His graciousness and His patience toward us. And the most natural thing in the world for us to do is that when we consider how good God has been to us, how gracious and how loving God has been to us, not only do we want to thank Him, not only do we want to sing praises to Him, but we want others to join in with us because we realize that our praises and our thankfulness alone are insufficient. Having begun at the end by praising God and inviting the saints to join Him in praising and thanking God, David now moves to what brought about his illness in the first place. And again, that is the sin of self-sufficiency. So let's continue by looking at verses 6 and 7. David continues writing, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by Your favor You have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid Your face. I was dismayed. The sin of self-sufficiency was a sin that David was clearly, clearly inclined toward. We've already seen these other times in his life when it was a very serious issue. David's pride deceived him into thinking the same thing that you and I can be deceived into thinking if we're not mindful of our own pride. And that is, I will never be moved. It's a lie. It's a lie. Your your translation might say shaken. That's That's another valid translation. That we will never be moved or shaken. Why? Because we're so prosperous. Everything's going well. Nothing's going to happen to me. We see the conditions that caused David to be tempted to drink his own Kool-Aid and believe this terrible lie. That condition was his own prosperity. His own comfort. His own abundance of earthly treasure. Things were looking up for David. He was doing not only well, he was doing outstandingly well. He was strong. He was healthy. He was feared and prevailing over his enemies. He was famous. And he was just soaking it all up, drinking his own Kool-Aid. What happened undoubtedly is that David started to treasure the gifts that God was bestowing upon him rather than valuing above all the giver of the gifts. His confidence And his contentedness in life moved from being in God to being in what God had given him. That's idolatry. Now it's been said that if God wants to punish a nation, all He needs to do is make them prosper. And is that not what we see going on in our nation today? This week... Tomorrow, actually, marks one year since the COVID-19 lockdowns began. Spiritually speaking, which direction has our country gone 
in the last year. Now, if you were to back up, say, say go back 10 years, and, and, and somebody tells you, okay, we're going to have this, this huge plague. There's, sin is going to be you know, abounding in the land, and there's going to be this huge plague, this pandemic that sweeps around the world. W- which direction do you think our country is going to go? I think I might have thought, you know, that's going to bring us to repentance. But the opposite has happened. Sin has pro- proliferated in the last year. I mean, this isn't rocket science. We have fallen further from God than this country has ever, ever been. But our nation is proud. And we're a prosperous nation. Before COVID hit, our stock market was soaring to new highs every week. Before COVID hit, our nation's attitude was already, I shall never be moved. And it's just carried over to the attitude that we have now. So why didn't COVID cause us to spiritually change direction? Why didn't it change our minds? It's because people in general, all around us, are so used to thinking, and we're so used to thinking, that we're just so self-sufficient. We're so autonomous. We're so independent. We have no need of God. So we'll kick Him out of our schools. We'll kick Him out of our courts. We'll kick Him out of every public avenue that we possibly can. Because we're prosperous without Him. The average person in our country convinced themselves long ago that we don't need God. And that includes people who go to church every week. Not everybody who goes to church every week. But nothing has made it more evident that this attitude was even being fostered in many churches than the fact that people were arguing that when the pandemic came, we should just close our churches. Christians were arguing that. Many professing Christians believed that this was the most loving thing that we could do for our neighbor, as if you can uphold the second table of the law by obliterating the first table of the law. No, you can't. You cannot love your neighbor if you're not obeying God. And God commands us to meet and to gather and to sing and to partake of the Lord's Supper and all these things. You cannot uphold the first table of uh, the second table of the law by neglecting the first half. How many of us assumed that in our prosperity, the governing authorities would always allow us to worship God freely? How many of us in our prosperity assumed that we would always have a thriving economy, a place for us in the job market? How many of us assumed that we had the best healthcare system in the world and that there could never possibly be a disease that could cripple us or take us down? It's been a trying year for us. But has God not done what is just? Has He not exposed the sinful attitudes that even many of His own people had, that of self-sufficiency and independence from God? Has He not thoroughly taught us that earthly treasure and prosperity are not necessarily indications of His favor, but in fact, they they might even be indications of His just wrath against our nation? The sin of self-sufficiency is the same attitude, by the way, that Peter struggled with, isn't it? Think about it. He was so confident 
in himself that he would be willing to stand by the Lord Jesus, even unto death if it was necessary. And then only a few hours later, he cowered in the face of a girl who recognized him. Peter's confidence was entirely in himself. He needed to be chastened. He needed God to chisel away all that sense of self-sufficiency. He had to learn the hard way that self-sufficiency is both prideful and foolish. He had to learn the hard way that while he wasn't sufficient, Jesus is. And that's exactly why Jesus instructed his disciples saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. That leaves no room for any idea that we can do something apart from God's work in us. Could Jesus have communicated both our lack of sufficiency and his total sufficiency in a, you know, a shorter sentence more clearly than that? We're not sufficient, but Jesus is. And part of our sanctification, part of our growth in Christ's likeness is learning the truthfulness of this. That apart from Christ, we cannot do some things. We can do nothing. This was also the key to Paul's joy. As he sat chained next to a Roman prison guard, which would have been an absolutely terrible position, an absolutely terrible affliction for anybody to find themselves in. And yet, Paul wrote to the Philippians in such conditions. He said, not that I speak from want. I don't want anything, he says. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul's saying that his well-being, his sense of well-being, his, his confidence, his contentedness remained the same no matter what was going on in his life, regardless of his conditions or his circumstances. But he couldn't have said this if his confidence and his contentedness depended upon his circumstances. Because sometimes he had much, and sometimes he had little, and sometimes he had nothing. So what was his secret? How did Paul remain joyful? How did he remain confident? How did he remain content even when he was in the worst of any imaginable situation? Of course, his answer is found in the following verse where he writes, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Jesus was Paul's sufficiency, just like Jesus was Peter's sufficiency. If Paul were not abiding in Jesus, then it didn't matter if he had much or had little. He wouldn't have been able to do anything. But in Christ, he could do all things. He could persevere. He could glorify Christ. He could find perfect contentment and confidence. 
This isn't just a a cute little inspirational quote for you to print on a a picture of an ocean and and hang on your wall and, and look at every day. No, this verse is a reminder of your insufficiency. It's a reminder of the all sufficiency of Christ and the insufficiency of ourselves. But this psalm, Psalm 30, lays out the only proper response to God's affliction. And that is confession. David openly confesses his sin of self-sufficiency and independence from God. He looks back and he realizes that what he had, all the prosperity that he had, God was the one who had given it to him. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. It wasn't David who made his mountain to stand strong, but in his prosperity, that's how he was feeling. He needed to be afflicted in order to come to this realization. And once he did, he confessed his sin. He's been humbled to see the frailty and the futility of placing confidence and contentedness in anything but God. What a fantastic blessing. And an important life lesson David learned when God hid his face from David for a time. It forced David to see how utterly pointless, in fact, how utterly stupid, how sinfully prideful and dangerous it is to believe that we are self-sufficient, to believe that we can exist independently of God. Let's continue looking at verses 8 to 12. David writes, To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. As David felt the pain of God's affliction, of God's discipline, the discomfort of God hiding His face from him, David did the only thing that he should have done. He cried out to the Lord. And when he cries out to the Lord, he begs for mercy. Having been intoxicated by his own prideful sense of independence, it's as if David woke up from a drunken slumber just in time to repent and to plead with God. Deliberating with God that if David's life were taken from him, the praise that David would offer to God would cease. In other words, David remembered how greatly he desired for God to be glorified in his life. But how would that happen if he goes down to the grave? And so he cries out in verse 10. He says this, O Lord, hear, O Lord, and be gracious unto me. What does it mean to be gracious? It means to act with grace toward So this is a a cry of repentance. And that is the cure for divine affliction, for divine 
discipline. He doesn't say, God, please do this on the basis of, of all the things I've done for you. God, look at all the good things I've done for you. Could, could you just heal me so I can keep doing good things for you? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, God, do this because these other people are really bad. I'm not as bad as they are. No, he has nothing to offer God. He has no plea based on himself. His plea is based on nothing but God's willingness to show grace to all who will turn to him and ask for it. By saying, be gracious, he's saying, God, please don't give me what I deserve. And we see in verses 11 and 12 that God responds. He responds by restoring David, by forgiving David, and lifting his afflicting, disciplining hand from David. And by doing so, David says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. The reason that David's conditions and his circumstances changed were directly related to the fact that his heart had changed, his attitude had, had changed, his perspective of self-sufficiency had been thrown to the wind. David had repented in sackcloth and ashes, and God responded by clothing David instead of in sackcloth and ashes in gladness. He had turned David's mourning spirit into a dancing one. And God did this. Look at verse 12 with me. God did this for His own glory. David writes, "...that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent." Friends, God has given David every reason in the world to, to sing and to thank God and to worship God. And God has given us every reason to praise Him and to sing to Him. How dare any governor tell us not to sing? Think about that for a second. What we see here is that singing is directly related to being thankful unto God. How dare any governor whose fate, whose eternal fate, if he does not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, is an eternal destiny in hell, how dare any governor try to prevent us from singing or instruct us to be silent? I'm not just trying to get political. I'm talking about anybody. Any politician or non-politician. How dare anyone instruct us to be silent when it comes to singing unto God. Nobody has the right to do that. Now some may say that the world's been through hell over the course of the past year through the COVID pandemic. And yeah, it's been a really difficult year. We can't deny that. But friends, whatever we've been through over the course of the past year, is nothing, is absolutely nothing in comparison to what every person who refuses to believe in Christ, every person who continues to insist on being self-sufficient will experience in the judgment that is yet to come. And make no mistake about it, that time will come. For the believer, God's judgments are but for a moment. But for, the, for those who will not turn to Christ in faith, 
It's for the rest of eternity. For the rest of eternity, for those who have not believed in Christ, the anger of the Lord will never be lifted. If you haven't believed and if you have not repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you today to see the utter futility of pretending that you can exist and prosper independently of God. Whatever prosperity you might have apart from God, that is just an illusion. I I urge you to consider the fact that you will lose that prosperity. You will lose every earthly treasure one day in death. And I want to ask you, what are you going to rely on then? What's going to be your sufficiency then? What's going to be your contentedness then? You won't have anything. But know this. If you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, God offers His grace and His favor and His forgiveness to you. He sent the Lord Jesus to bear the sin of all who would call upon His name, to bear the sin of all who would believe in Him. And so if you're asking, well, what do I have to do to be saved? That's exactly what God would have you ask right now. The answer is you must repent and believe in Jesus. You must abandon your self-sufficiency. You must see that Christ alone is sufficient. And so you go from being independent of God and having this perception of being autonomous apart from God to living a life that's being increasingly conformed to the image of Christ in which you submit your life and your ways entirely to God by His grace. You must have Christ's perfect righteousness transferred to you, credited to you, and He offers it. He offers it to all who come to Him in faith and repentance. God uses frequently, often, difficult, painful, and temporary circumstances and afflictions to teach His people to see themselves as being totally dependent on Him. By grace, He is even now working to chisel away everything within you that does not resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Christian goes through times and perhaps even seasons in which they fall into this sin of feeling like we don't need God all that much. But praise the Lord that by His grace in those times, His graciousness and loving kindness continue. And the Lord disciplines His children, not out of anger, not out of wrath, but in order to cause us to see the futility and the stupidity, really, of holding on to a sense of self-sufficiency and to learn to live And to learn to walk in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Apart from whom we can do nothing, but in whom we can do all things for His glory. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for your grace. 
In the silence of our hearts, Lord, we recognize and confess before You that we are so prone to cling to this sense of self-sufficiency. We're so prone to see ourselves as not needing You all that much. But we thank You that by Your grace You have forgiven us. We thank You that by Your grace You have taken our sin from us and You have put it on Your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in exchange, You have given us His own perfect righteousness that we may stand before You blameless, forgiven, all by Your grace. Lord, we pray that You would teach us to be grateful for even the hard times in our lives. That even those times are a gift from Your hand. All designed, all intended to make us more like Christ. We pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to see His all-sufficiency. And that we would have a greater desire to worship Him, to obey Him, and to live for His glory. In His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.